Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Barn. Today we have a wonderful guest host joining me. Dr. Stephen Duran is one of our PhD equine nutritionists here at Stanley. I'm excited to have you on to talk about certified noxious weed-free forage and straw today, Dr. Duran. Thank you for having me. Let's just get right into this topic. We're kind of at the time of year where, you know, you have more people who like to go out, maybe use horses for hunting, or if you are really into like camping with your horses, or some people even choose to utilize alpacas or llamas or even pack goats. And so this is all going to be very relevant to a number of different types of livestock and not just horses. So it's a good time of year to be talking about this topic. Yeah, absolutely. And all those animals share the need once they're in the backcountry or once they're in the forest, they still have to eat and that becomes the responsibility of the owner. So absolutely, it's a relevant topic and there are lots of rules as we'll get into with taking feeds or food for those animals into the forest. Right. So before we can even really talk about certified noxious weed-free forage and straw, First, we really need to talk about and define what noxious weeds are. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. The noxious weeds are defined by the individual states. What weeds they think are the most important to their particular state and which weeds cause the most damage. But in general, a noxious weed, they're the bad actors, if you will. They're the harmful weeds that injure actual agriculture or habitat. And they do that because they grow aggressively, they shade other plants, they compete with other native plants for nutrients in the soil, for sunlight. They crowd them out and take over. Also, many of the noxious weeds can be poisonous to animals or not be palatable, so they don't become feed for the native animals that are associated with that habitat. Right. So I've seen some people refer to this as weed-free. Like, we will sometimes have consumers looking for weed-free hay or weed-free straw or something like that, but... That's not exactly the case in what we're talking about. So what exactly is the difference between weed-free and then certified noxious weed-free? Yeah, the weed-free technology or terminology, if you will, is kind of a catch-all phrase. And it was the early terminology that was used when we naively thought that we could control all weeds in forages. That was the term that they did. We need to make things weed-free. Well, then as we went down the track, then we found out, well, some of those weeds aren't bad. They're just that. They're a weed, maybe not even native to the area, but they're not fast growing and they don't provide or cause an environmental risk. The noxious weeds, those are the ones that can be poisonous that actually destroy the environment and are very fast growing and take over entire ecosystems. And those noxious weeds, especially in our environments in Idaho, 
we have a high risk for wildfires. And don't those noxious weeds really have a good tendency to come back with some strength compared to some of the other native species that are there after wildfires? Absolutely. When we destroy the natural plants that are there and we destroy those through wildfire or whatever situation causes them to be damaged, again, the noxious weeds are very fast growing, very prolific type plants. So if they're giving any type of foothold to get started, absolutely they take over. So a fire, any disaster, and then you have noxious weeds present there, they will only get more prolific in that area. And they're really good at sucking up water. Yeah, and we are in a major drought in the western United States now, so water is key. It hasn't rained a lot this summer, so they compete with the native plants for that water, and a lot of them are more deep-rooted. In other words, they can get some of that groundwater and grow long before a native plant can, so very destructive to the environment. Yes, and gosh, they have such an advantage, especially after like a wildfire comes through, so it makes it really difficult. And it's good that we're working to try to manage those a little bit. So who then sets the minimum standards for certified noxious weed-free forage or straw? And you mentioned states each have their own noxious weeds that they work with, but how does that overarching regulatory aspect work? Well, just as you would expect, this individual state would have input of what the noxious weeds that they're most concerned about are most prolific in their particular area. But there is a governing body that puts the rules together in general, and that's the North American Invasive Species Management Association. Again, North American Invasive Species Management Association, and that's who the governing body, if you will, that make the rules for especially the federal forests or the federal lands. Right. In some of those states, like Idaho, for example, we have our own set of regulatory measures that we put in place, too. So they go off of the North American Invasive Species Management Association, but we also have our own list, too, right? Absolutely. We have our own regulatory body. We have our own inspectors, if you will, all through the Idaho Department of Agriculture. Right. And so who is in charge of inspecting the forage and straw to ensure that the certification is upheld and everybody's following the rules with that when it comes to promoting or selling certified noxious weed-free hay or straw? Before it can be given that terminology that it's noxious weed-free, it has to be inspected. So forage, while it's growing, is actually inspected in the field a maximum of 10 days prior to harvest. So they don't want it inspected one time and then weeds grow and they're not aware of that. It, it has to be inspected within 10 days prior to harvest. And again, that is a state Idaho Department of Agriculture trained inspector that can certify that that forage is free of noxious weeds. What states and areas require certified noxious weed-free forage or straw to be packed in? Not every state has to do that, but some of them do, right? Actually, that's incorrect. 
all states have to do it because all states have some federal land and this is mandatory on federal land that they have that so if you are curious you're going to a state that you may not be familiar with if you look at those every single state has their regulations for bringing forages into forests so then how do livestock owners how are they able to find out if they need to use certified products where ever they're going, whether they're going camping or I know some of like the guides and outfitters, they do this on a regular basis. So they're very well versed in all of this. But maybe for those people that are wanting to take their horses out on a trail ride somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. The easiest way to find that information is if you just go to the United States Department of Agriculture website, which is USDA.gov. And then you can, from there, navigate to weed seed free forage requirements, and it gives you the entire state-by-state listing of those requirements. Okay, that'll be really helpful, I think, for anybody who's kind of getting the itch to get out there and Maybe if they don't normally trail ride, they want to try something a little bit new or something like that. Another question that I was thinking about was, are livestock owners required to buy certified noxious weed-free forage or straw from the same state in which the national lands are located that they're going to? No, they can buy forage from whatever state they live in as long as it has the proper identification. In other words, it's been certified by the North American Invasive Species Management Association. As long as it fits that labeling and has that labeling, that will work in all of the states. That's helpful. You have had the opportunity to spend a bit of time at one point in your life in the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness. And for those that aren't very familiar with that area, this is in Idaho, and it was designated as wilderness by U.S. Congress in 1980, and it covers, I think, more than 2.3 million acres of forest. Yes, it's the largest wilderness area in the lower 48 states, so it's massive. It is. And it's gorgeous because it's designated as wilderness. You can't take any like mechanical things in there. So like you can't even fly drones in there. You can't take vehicles. So anybody who's wanting to go out there to go hunting or hiking or camping or whatever, you have to go by foot or by horse or llama. Absolutely. It's very remote. So the Forest Service has designated their certain landing strips where airplanes, very small airplanes, can land on dirt runways. And that becomes the access point for many recreation type people. The only other ways are by horse or on foot to get into those areas. Right. And so you got to experience that a little bit between the time that you were working on your master's and PhD at the University of Kentucky. You kind of had a fun experience just out there kind of taking a break away from school. But let us know a little bit about were there requirements for certified noxious weed-free forage or straw at that time? There weren't federal requirements at that time. They were just starting to think of it, and the whole weed seed free was starting to become a buzzword. And the reason for that is quite simple. The Forest Service and the outfitters began to notice that there was an accumulation of weeds 
especially at points that were trailheads where horses or people would begin to enter the wilderness area. And then for a certain distance up the trail, there were, were heavy infestations of weeds. And then oftentimes in the first meadows, 20 miles into the wilderness where someone may stop for the first night, they found there was an accumulation in those areas as well. Tell me a little bit more about how they found that this was an issue. And there was some research that started happening. Can you tell us a little bit more about that whole process and what it took for them to kind of start initiating some of these regulatory measures to kind of help protect the environment? Yeah, absolutely. The reason that the weeds were at the beginning of the trails or the trailheads and during the initial couple miles of the trail and then in these meadows is because when a human begins to walk the trail, if he has any weed seeds on his shoes from previous hikes or maybe from around their own personal living space, those always get knocked off initially during their walk. Well, similar when livestock, horses, llamas, alpacas, pack goats, when they start up a trail, what it does is it stimulates smooth muscle contraction within their digestive system. Those animals will then defecate or pass manure in the initial portions of the trail, and that manure is reflective of whatever that animal, horse, llama, alpaca, goat, whatever they ate in the 72 hours preceding that. So oftentimes that's how those initial areas of the trail got contaminated with weeds. Similar, that first meadow 20 miles in where those horses camped for the night, the rest of the manure from the previous day's eating would come out in that particular area, and that was often full of those weed seeds. So that's how we we noticed that initial contamination. So it led to some interesting research. Specifically, Montana State University looked into that with a program that they had where they actually had students that would go to the backcountry every summer and do a host of different research projects. And they began to look into the viability of weed seeds with certain treatments. In other words, can a weed seed go through a horse's digestive system, be passed out in the manure and still grow? Simple answer, yes, it can. But they also looked at and began this whole weed seed free thing, what it took to get certified. And initially, we believed that all it took to be weed seed free is the forage had to be made into a pellet. And that heating process that, that's involved in taking a forage, grinding it, putting it into a pellet with heat, that that would destroy the viable weed seeds. And that was incorrect as well. Again, research has, has went on to show that it's not the heating process that destroys that. Now they're looking or looked after that. They found that the factor that influences the viability of the seed the most was how that forage was ground prior to putting it into the pellet. So the finer that it was ground, the more it destroyed those viable weed seeds. So forage that was in a cube that's not ground hardly at all. That's in pretty still long stem form. So it would have more viable weed seeds than a pellet, and especially a pellet that was fine ground through a dye. Okay. That was some interesting findings that they discovered. And so then came, I guess, the development of some of these programs to try to reduce 
noxious weeds from basically taking over the environment and in different areas, especially where they're more prevalent. So that's some really interesting information and the research that they found, especially at first you might think, okay, well, we need to maybe stop bringing in hay or straw or whatever that could have some of these noxious weeds in them. But that research where they actually dug a little bit deeper and found that some of the animals were bringing it in even after, you know, not worrying about the hay products themselves. It was more the process of it coming out the back end of the animal that was really kind of sneaking in there and causing more of a havoc, I guess. Yeah, and I think you can see the whole transformation, if you will, from simply thinking, all right, it's pelleted forage, therefore it's weed seed, then knowing that that's not the case, and then the next movement moving to where you have certified inspectors looking at the forage while it's growing in the field to help eliminate these noxious weeds before they ever get into the animal. But where could we go from here? We may go into a situation where if horses, mules, goats, llamas, alpacas, if they're going into the forest, it may be that those horses have to serve a three-day quarantine period before they go into the actual forest. Another easy way around that would be since most horses and pack animals or recreation animals that are at home are eating whatever diet is traditional to that area, they're going to have to have a diet change to go into the forest because obviously you can't take your pasture with you. So if you say, I'm going to change my horse's diet over and do it three to four days prior to going into the forest, you do a whole switch in the diet at that particular time, you also decrease the weed seeds that would potentially go in from whatever diet they're eating at home. So there's lots of things that we can do as responsible recreational enthusiasts to help the environment and just simply make a diet change before the animal goes into the forest to help reduce those weed seeds. Right. And some people may not know this. I know we've talked about this on some of our previous episodes, but for anybody who may just be tuning into this one, talk about what kind of issues can arise if let's say that you either just have your horse out on pasture and then you take them to whatever location you're going to and you just start feeding them the hay or cubes or pellets, whatever you have there for your animals. What could happen to the animal if you just basically switch them right over? The biggest effect you have with a diet change is any diet change, whether it's for a horse, a mule, a goat, an alpaca, or llama, anytime you change the diet, you increase the likelihood of digestive upset that you're going to cause them some discomfort or potential sickness. So what we always do as a rule is we say, we need to make these dietary changes slowly. So you're getting ready, you're planning a vacation or an outing in the back country that the horse is going to go with you for perhaps a week or 10 days, however long you're going to be in that. You need to remember his diet is going to be different. You're better to gradually change that diet ahead of time while the horse is at home in his natural environment, begin to offer him some pellets or some cubes that are noxious weed seed free product, begin to make that transition at home so you can do it gradually so you don't risk that digestive upset when you rapidly change that once you're in the wilderness. And possible colic, which we all know how much heartache that can cause for horse owners and horses and 
other equines. Very true. And a colic situation when you're at home is serious. A colic situation where you're in the backcountry can be fatal. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's a good point. Because you wouldn't have the veterinary care or the ability to get the animal to a veterinarian rapidly. So we want to minimize any potential health problems with horses long before they ever occur. Right. And since you're transitioning anyway, just like you said, may as well make it with a certified noxious weed-free forager hay because it's no more work for you than it already was anyway. It's just a matter of making sure that it's certified because you're going to be needing it when you go out into those wilderness or national lands anyway. So each state, there's kind of some similarities, but they have certain colors or labeling to identify if products are certified noxious weed-free. How can we determine... For example, Stanley Premium Western Forage products. How can we tell that those products are certified? Yeah, first and foremost, it needs to be stated that it's the responsibility of the horse owner, the goat owner, the owner of the livestock going into the forest to make sure the products that they have fit the requirements for the forest or the public land that they're going on. So ultimately, it still relies on the owner of the livestock to do that. But all of those products, whether they're products in Idaho or products in Montana or where they happen to be, will all have distinctive labeling that indicates that it is, and it will all be supported by the company. In other words, the company to get that designation had to have things inspected, and they are well aware of that, and they can direct you towards products that fit into that. But you're absolutely correct. There is banding, there's labeling on products that indicates that those are designated as noxious weed seed free products. Right. And so for Stanley, for example, our compressed bales, those are wrapped with like a light purple, more lavender type of color. And to kind of easily identify and distinguish between the two, the certified bales are wrapped in yellow banding. And then you can tell pretty significantly, especially if you're looking on a side-by-side -side with the bag forage, it obviously is going to read as being certified forage, but the top part of the bag is going to have a tan color, whereas our non-certified products are a darker green color. And they also happen to have a little statement label at the bottom of the front of the bag that says that it's been certified by the Idaho Department of Ag. Absolutely. And and I've been inspected out in the wilderness by different regulatory bodies to make sure the forage that we had was certified noxious weed-free forage. It doesn't make any difference if you say that it is. You've got to be able to prove that it is. So having the bag, having the banding with the labeling and proper labeling will go a long ways in preventing you from creating a violation. That's a good point. I'm glad that you mentioned that because maybe not even on purpose, some people, whether they have certain ways that they're trying to pack stuff in, especially with the banding on the bales, they may not think about that. And so having that is a really good idea to make sure that you think about that before you go out. Yes, yeah, Stanley, where they, where they use the compressed bales are A, very easy to pack because they weigh the same amount and they're very dense, so they're easy to pack. But the writing is right on the band, which is really important. If you take long stem hay, like in a traditional two-string bale, when those are inspected, they give you a little tag that goes on the string. 
those tags fall off really easy. And if you can't prove with the string that that is the bail, they'll go ahead and write you a violation and you can prove it later. Right. And you can be fined for that. I don't know if people know that. You absolutely can be fined for that. One of our consumers had talked about they have an insulin-resistant horse, and so they have some issues with sugars and starches and feeding their horses. So what would you recommend for someone who may be wanting to take their carbohydrate-sensitive horse camping and, of course, they're needing certified noxious weed-free forage, but it also needs to be low sugar and starch. And this person is obviously hoping to not have to soak their hay if at all possible. So do you have any kind of recommendations or suggestions for those individuals who may be wanting to do something like that? First, it's a good idea to, to take those horses. Those horses can certainly be used for that recreational purpose of going into the back country, but you can't ignore that they still require diets that are low in sugar and starch. So the type of forage that, that Stanley has that's low in sugar and starch that is also certified as noxious weed seed free would be the alfalfa. That product would be acceptable for those horses from a sugar starch standpoint, and it would also be acceptable from a weed seed free or noxious weed seed free forage. Perfect. That's a good idea. Then hopefully, as long as their horse is able to eat alfalfa, that is a good option for them. Absolutely. Before we get things kind of wrapped up on this episode, I know we talked about obviously that bringing in certified noxious weed-free forage or straw, and then also the situation about making sure that you get your animals fed that type of forage before they come into any wilderness or national lands areas a few days before going out there just because they can go out there and their manure can easily spread those weed seeds. Are there other ways that recreational land, national land users or livestock owners can be aware of to help minimize the spread of noxious weeds when they're coming into those areas? I think the whole thing is you just need to be cognizant that all your movement, whether it's your personal movement or movement of your livestock, has the ability to transport those seeds. If you're going into an area of the forest where you can take motor-driven vehicles, you know, make sure that they're cleaned and washed off so that they're not getting seeds from maybe a pasture that you rode in that had some noxious weeds in it and then transferring those to the forest. Your personal hiking gear. For example, if you we're lucky enough to be able to travel and you visit some of these island countries, New Zealand, for example. That's a country that takes that very seriously, the contamination of their public land with grasses and weeds that are non-native to the area. So if you bring camping gear into New Zealand, it all has to be washed and all free of any kind of dirt, soil, or seeds before they'll even let it out of the airport. I've went there more than once where they found a speck of mud on a hiking boot and they completely washed the boots to make sure that we weren't going to destroy the unique environment that they had on their island. So take it very seriously because it's great country to enjoy, but if we continue to pack weeds and weed seeds into there, pretty soon it's not pretty to look at and, and it's a weed patch and we certainly don't want that. 
Right. That was a good example, especially you had mentioned in a previous conversation about New Zealand is a, it's a small island there. And if they were to be devastated by something like that, it would be really rough on their ecosystems that they have there in place. Yes, absolutely. And there's a lot of native animals there, you know, with the red deer and different things that they have there that they don't eat weeds, you know, they eat grasses. And so that ramification of bringing weeds into it would end up starving those animals as well. Right. That would be really heartbreaking. And I think just for our own public lands, our national forests, national lands, I think it's something that we can all very much benefit from to take care of the land that we have that's there. Because if we enjoy going out and we enjoy packing in to go hunting, or if we enjoy just packing in to maybe go on a a fun trail ride or camping or or what have you, we want to be able to have those environments there for us in the future. We want to be able to go back year after year, you know, maybe... Someday you'll take your kids out there or, you know, nieces and nephews or whoever, you know, future generations. I think it's really important that we all take pride in taking care of something that belongs to all of us and the animals that live there. Yeah. The other interesting thing is, is if you just remember that your your livestock has to go through a dietary change anyway, going from what you'd feed them at home to what they have available in the forest, you might as well change to a weed seed free product, a certified noxious weed free product and do it right and try to help the environment. It's It's not any harder to do it right. Right. It's the right thing to do anyway, but when it doesn't take any extra effort, why not, right? Absolutely. So Dr. Duran, thank you so much for being on today and discussing this topic with me. I think we all have learned quite a bit more about, you know, the purpose of certified noxious weed-free forages and straw, what they're there for, what noxious weeds can kind of do to the environment, and really how we can kind of do our part and making it a little bit better place and leaving it Just like they always recommend, if you are going to someone's house or wherever, leave it better than the way you left it, right? I think that's a good thing that we can all kind of take into consideration when it comes to the environment, too. Absolutely. Thanks again for being on today. And I would just love to remind you all, if you are enjoying our podcast, please leave us a a review on Apple Feel free to email us at podcasts at stanleyforage.com for topic ideas or things that you would love to hear us discuss. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.